All right. Good morning. How was everyone this morning? Good? All right. Good to see everybody. Hey, I want to encourage you to pull out your notes this morning, and we are going to be in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. I encourage you to pull out your Bibles or your notes. Find Numbers chapter 12. Keep your finger there, and uh, we're going to be walking through the entire chapter today. Um, last week, we talked about having an attitude adjustment. Today, we're going to be talking about having a heart adjustment from Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and uh, we're going to read all the way down to verse 16. I'm going to read the whole chapter for you, kind of set the stage, context. So here we go. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us, through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done <coughs> foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. And the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazroth and encamped in the wilderness of Paran. Last week, we looked at Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, and we talked about complaining and negativity and grumbling. Which, by the way, how did everyone do on, on, on that front last week? Did pretty good? You know, I left church Sunday, and we were driving home, and I was having a conversation with my wife and my daughter, and I was like, hey, no, no complaining. I mean, it's on the way home, and I had to do a heart check real quick, right? Um, there are parallels between Numbers chapter 11 and Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 11, the people are complaining about their misfortunes, right? They're wanting meat. We looked at that last week. They're, they, they're telling Moses, we want meat, right? We are not satisfied with God's provision in our life. We want more. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, 
Moses' sister and brother, they're complaining and they're actually um, criticizing, speaking out against Moses because he married a Cushite woman. So the criticism and opposition hits closer to home. Numbers chapter 11, after the people complain and God hears, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. Numbers chapter 12, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Miriam and Aaron. Numbers 11, fire falls. Numbers chapter 12, Miriam gets leprosy. So between these two chapters, the people are moving from, from wanting meat, desiring meat, not being really content with God's provision, and they move from meat to complaining about Moses' new marriage. They move from the physical to the spiritual. They move from bellies not being satisfied to racism not being satisfied with Moses' pick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Here's just a reminder for us. We looked at this last week. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So when you come to the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the story is for us. We see God's grand uh, narrative, story of redemption, but every story Every narrative in the Old Testament was meant for us, right? It it happened to them as an example. It was written down for our instruction. Sometimes we come to the Bible and and we we say, well, this story, it's for them, right? It's, It's about them. No, it's more than just historical. It has to be personal. And this is why God's word is timeless and it's relevant today. Because something that happened thousands of years ago The same principle, the same truth, the same God, all of that is applied to us today. And that's a wonderful thing. Amen? So it's historical, but it's also personal. What they faced, we face. Moses was facing opposition about his new wife because she had darker skin color. There was racism. They had hard hearts towards Moses and and this Cushite woman. We, We face racism today. Numbers chapter 11 and chapter 12, there are two things happening. The storyline moves from complaining to criticism. The opposition moves from like the people, it's kind of out there, and it moves within. Now it's amongst Moses, his older sister, and his brother Aaron. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, let me read it again. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Here's point number one. Jot this down. Racism is a sin. Racism is a sin. I thought about trying to wordcraft it and make it sound, you know, more creative and clever. Clever. Here's the deal. The Bible says emphatically and clearly, racism is a sin. It's against the word of God. It's it's against God's very heart. Now, Miriam, who's Miriam? Well, she's the older sister. Some scholars think maybe she was eight, nine, ten years older than Moses. She's the one that uh, was by the riverbank, right, the Nile. And she's the one that got her mom to then step in and be able to nurse Moses. We looked at that whole story. In Exodus 15, after the people were led by the strong arm of the Lord and God performed this miracle and he parted the Red Sea 
it says that in Exodus 15, Miriam sings a song. So it kind of gives the idea, maybe Miriam was some kind of a worship leader, right? She, she's leading the people in worship. Can you imagine a worship experience for like two million people? I mean, can you, can you just imagine that? I can't even imagine it. So she's leading God's people in worship, right? Aaron is a brother. We know much about Aaron. We've looked at him a lot. But it says in verse 1 that they speak against Moses. The, the verb there is feminine. So it's not really clear in the English, but they're critical of Moses' new wife. And because it's feminine, it, it gives the idea that Miriam is the principal critic. Just because, now you might say, well, didn't she just see God perform all these miracles and part the Red Sea and, and she led the people in worship? Yeah, just because you love God doesn't mean that you can't get goofed up. It doesn't mean that you can't go sideways, right? It doesn't mean that you can't have a critical spirit, right? Anybody want to testify about having a critical spirit? Anybody? Okay, okay, maybe not. All right. Moses' first wife, remember, we're in the story. We're just like them, right? Um, Moses' first wife, Zipporah, uh, she must have died. There's no mention of her. We know that she was from Midian. Moses gets a second wife, and it says that she's a Cushite woman. Now, notice the double emphasis in verse 1. It mentions that she's a Cushite woman twice. Now, Cush is located in the region of Ethiopia. So Moses most likely marries a darker-skinned woman. A black African-American woman, dark, swarthy complexion, right? She's from Ethiopia. Now, darker skin back in the day, it, it meant several things. Maybe your family worked in the fields. It, it definitely was like a, a lower level of employment. Today, people try all the tan, tan spray-ons. They want to get tan, right? They want to get darker, right? Um, have you noticed this? There's no spray-on that makes you whiter. Have you noticed that? No, it's just darker, right? So, um, Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, they're critical of her. Now, I want you to remember something. Here, here's the irony of the story. They're against a Cushite woman. They're against her ethnicity, the, the skin color. Have they, they have so easily forgotten about the slavery in Egypt. I mean, they have forgotten about the ethnic slavery. The nation of Israel, they were manhandled, they were oppressed, they were, uh, they were bruised and enslaved, they were slaves in Egypt. They have forgotten about the ethnic genocide, that the Hebrew boys were being murdered and thrown into the Nile. I mean, the, the irony is not lost on us. Now they're ringleaders of racism. Racism is an issue of the heart. It's a heart issue. If, if you have something against someone based on the color of their skin, you have problems with God because every person was made in the image of God. God gave you a soul, right? I mean, I like to say the church is like Skittles, man. Heaven's gonna be like Skittles, all different types of colors, right? Enjoy the Skittles now because that's what it's going to be like in heaven. And by the way, the purple Skittle is the best. All right, there we, there we go. But the Bible says, the Bible does not condemn, let me say this very clearly, the Bible does not condemn interracial marriages. The Bible's for it. 
The Bible's for it. You see it right here. It starts early. Actually, it really starts in Genesis. But the Bible does not condemn interracial marriages. The Bible does condemn interfaith marriages. We talked about this last week. If you are raising children, if you're a believer, it is a stewardship. God has, has entrusted those kids to you. Those kids don't belong to you. Those, you don't own those kids. Those kids belong to God. And God has given them to you. They're on loan to you for a certain amount of time for you to invest, for you to love, for you to steward, for you to show them the way, for you to say, listen, I love you so much. I want what's, what's best for you. I want God's best for you. And if they're a believer, they should marry another believer. It's not very popular to say believers should marry believers because in our culture, you know, people, oh, that's just narrow-minded, that's legalistic. That, listen, no, that's just Bible. And if you don't like it, don't take it up with me. Take it up with Jesus, all right? Jesus is the one who said it, right? And by the way, Jesus was Jewish. You know, I can't stand those portraits of Jesus. He's feminine. He's white. He was not white. Olive skin, maybe even darker. He had darker skin. He was Jewish, right? So if, if you have a, a, a problem with someone's skin color, then guess what? You have a problem with the skin color of Jesus. All right, here we go. So, Book of Acts. Now, normally I don't do this. Normally I stay put. I walk through the text, right? But today I'm going to veer off for just a little bit because I want to, I really want to make a connection between racism and the gospel and how these two things are connected. Racism is not a political, social issue. It is more than that. It is a gospel issue. It, it is a Christianity issue. So when you come to the book of Acts, um, you see the gospel spreading, right? And you see Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Paul and Barnabas, they go on their first missionary journey, right? And they're planting churches, and people are coming to faith in Christ. They come back to Antioch, home base, headquarters, and the first missionary journey is over. Paul and Barnabas, this dynamic missionary duo, they go to Antioch, and they tell the church at Antioch, the first Gentile church of believers, they say, hey, God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Amazing news. Word gets out. The Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And this caused some problems. Now, Acts 15, verse 1. This is, this is where we pick up the story. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. What were they saying? Unless you are circumcised According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you had Judaizers who were teaching that grace plus circumcision makes you right with God. That's adding something to the gospel. That's work-based salvation. Now you might say, well, what is circumcision? Well, if you go back to Genesis 17, God made a covenant with Abraham. Covenant of circumcision. Every male on the eighth day would be circumcised. It was a branding, a mark on the flesh for every male, and it symbolized that you were a part of the Jewish people. You were a part of the, the people of God. It was a big deal. I mean, if you were not circumcised, if you didn't have that mark on the flesh, oh, man. I mean, spiritually, you were not a part of, of, of God's people, his promises, covenants, everything. Now fast forward to Acts 15. I just read it a moment ago, verse 1. Acts 15 is known as the grace debate, okay? There's a lot of confusion. People are saying, do we add circumcision as requirement 
for those who embrace Christ by faith, or do we not? And they, they kicked it around. The apostles, the, the elders, uh, Paul and Barnabas were a part of that. And they came down, and they, 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 clearly, <coughs> they clearly state that salvation is totally by grace through faith in Christ alone. Literally, they said, let's not make it difficult for those who are far away from God to come to faith in Christ. Let's not, let's not make it difficult for them, right? It's not about circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart, right? It's you embracing Christ by faith, turning from your sin. That's the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas um, were then sent to Antioch to share this news. The Jerusalem Council, they sent a letter. Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, and the letter gets there. They read it to the church at Antioch, and the people are rejoicing. These Gentile believers are rejoicing because they don't have to be circumcised. Practically, I can understand why they're rejoicing, okay? (laughs) Acts 15, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. That's key. There are other people there. Now, what happened at Antioch? Well, Paul confronts Peter, and he confronts Peter. This is on the heels of the Jerusalem Council, the letter being sent to Antioch, and I want you to see the confrontation. Now, you might say, man, this is a long detour. It's it's important, okay? I want you to see the confrontation. Galatians 2, 11 to 14, it says this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Notice what Paul said. He said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, right? These were like the Judaizers coming down. You got, you got to be circumcised. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas went on the first missionary journey with Paul. He saw all these Gentiles come to faith in Christ, right? I mean, he was a part of, he was in Jerusalem when the council met. Right? Mind-blowing. But when I saw that their conduct, now this is key. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So he calls Peter out, not privately, but publicly. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Let me help you understand this real quick. Peter found out that the Gentiles could cook. Okay, that was, all right, maybe the timing was bad, right? That's supposed to be kind of funny. First service, they laughed, right? Whatever, all right. Man, you're kind of a tough crowd this morning, guys. Peter was enjoying good old Antioch barbecue, right? Come on. Come on. All right. All right. So he's hanging out with these Gentile believers. But when the circumcision party, when the Judaizers, when they show up, Peter is nowhere to be found. Ninja Eskmoos, man, he's gone, right? Maybe he's eating a, a rib and drops it on the table. He's gone, right? It says that he, he withdrew and he separated himself. Now, the Greek word for withdrew means a strategic military withdrawal. Why would Peter do this? I mean, how could he go from such a high moment declaring the gospel, the gospel in a nutshell, it is simple, it's, it's salvation is 
faith in Christ alone, and now he's like withdrawing from the Gentiles. I think it's fear. You might say, well, fear of what? It's exactly what we face today as, as believers. Fear of disapproval. Fear of not being accepted. Fear of losing popularity. Fear of embarrassment. Shame. I think Peter, there was some embarrassment. Maybe he thought they were going to look down upon him because he's, he's eaten with the Gentiles. And if it couldn't get any worse, it leads to a domino effect. It says the rest of the Jews, the rest of the Jewish believers in Antioch and Barnabas. Barnabas is like one of the key spiritual leaders of the church. They followed suit. Paul says, you know what? They all acted hypocritically. The Greek word there is they, they were playing the part. You know, that, that word is used for, for actors, play actors. And so it'd be one actor, and they would play multiple parts. One day they'd have this mask on, or the next part they'd have this mask on. And so here's the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying Peter was not being real. Peter was not holding to his convictions. He wasn't holding to the gospel. He was wearing a mask. His actions were not in step with the, with the truth of the gospel. He was not walking in line with God's words. His actions and his words were not matching up. You know, I don't know if you remember, but the, you, anybody remember the Garmin GPS that you put in your car when they first came out? Man, they were really bad, right? I mean, you try to follow it, and it gets you lost. If you made one wrong turn, you'd be completely lost. But today, now it's like, in certain cars, it's got like a big old computer screen. And it shows you, the, like, the whole city, practically, the whole neighborhood. And the, the beautiful thing about a GPS system is you just put in your destination. It tells you how to get there, where to go, as long as you listen to the word. As long as you listen to the word, it's going to speak to you. Turn right here, turn left here, go straight. As long as you listen, you're going to make progress and you're going to reach the final destination. Here's the spiritual connection. Here's the point. God's word is our GPS system. It's our global positioning system. If we align ourselves, not with culture, not with culture, if we align ourselves with the word of God, then we will reach the final destination. God has it all mapped out. All we got to do is follow his instructions, obey his word, right? And so, so Paul's calling Peter out. Paul confronts Peter in front of everyone. He's like, if, if you, hey, Peter, hey, Peter, help me understand this. You're a Jew. If you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, which you were doing, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's like, I think this is like a great statement about the justification by faith doctrine, right? It's not about being Jewish. Paul's like, Peter, you can't do it. You're not good enough. But you're forcing these people to do what you can't do. And so the point is we are justified, declared righteous before God by faith in Christ. Paul is emphatically saying, listen, Peter, this is a gospel issue. He's like, Peter, you have embarrassed Christ. 
Galatians 2 is a textbook case for how the gospel is applied to race. This is why I say the gospel is not a political social issue. Racism is not a political social issue. It is a gospel issue. Paul called Peter out. He's like, hey, man, your actions aren't matching up with the gospel. They're not matching up. There are moments in all of our lives, and I don't care what color skin you have, there are moments there are in your life where maybe a, a joke is said. And in that split second, you can engage in that joke, which is racially charged, racially motivated, putting down other people, making you, making you superior, them inferior. There's moments like that. And as believers, we, we need to call that out or not engage in it, right? As believers, we... We're the ecclesia, we're the called out, right? We've been saved by God's grace. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We should, we should have each other's back. You know, we, the, the culture, this is a hot topic issue for our culture, racism. It's always been an issue. But as believers in Christ, we need to hold to the scriptures. And, and what does the scriptures tell us? Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ, Because we're in Christ, we are one. You know, your spiritual family is going to outlast your physical family. If your physical family, if they're not believers, you're not going to see them in heaven. You will not see them in heaven. But we're a spiritual family. We're going to be together in heaven. And so the gospel obliterates racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers. It obliterates gender barriers. You ever heard someone say, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. I don't see color, right? Well, God's not in favor of colorblind. Here's why. Because the sky is blue. Forests are green. The desert is brown. You ever seen the beautiful uh, white snowy mountain caps? Isn't that amazing? The color white. Now, if you're a little colorblind a little bit. This, this is a rough illustration here for you, okay? But, but there is color. I'm seeing color everywhere, right? God created color. He designed everything, right? Everything's made in his image, his creativity, right? His brilliance. There's an intelligent designer. So God isn't colorblind, but neither is he blinded by color. The Bible tells us that the Bible tells us how we should relate to one another. The, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 1 John 4, 7 to 8, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Can it be any clearer? I mean, it's so clear, Right? Look at 1 John 4, 20 to 21. If anyone says, I love God, I love God, and hates his brother, let me say it this way. Anyone who says, I love God, but is a racist towards someone who's different than them, is a liar. You're not a truth teller. You're not holding to the gospel. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. So we we get this from, from the Lord. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If, if, you, if you can't love someone 
that looks different from you? How can you love God whom you've never seen? You've never seen God. You know, I didn't mention this in the first service, but second service, I got a little bit more time, so I chased a few more rabbits. So. But my brother-in-law, uh, my brother-in-law married my older daughter, my older daughter, older daughter. My, yeah, that's like Old Testament stuff. My, my, my brother-in-law, this is, this is when you go off script for a moment, you really mess things up. My older, my, I'm done. I'm moving on. Whatever. I'm moving on. Do you want me to share it? No, I'm not sharing it. Okay. No, my brother-in-law married my older sister. Okay. There we go. And he's black. My sister's white. Merging a black family and a white family. And let me tell you this. It wasn't all hunky-dory. There were people on both sides that, you know... It was like they accepted it, but, you know, they were struggling with it, right? That, that's, that's not gospel. That, that's not the gospel. That's crazy. And so I remember my brother-in-law, he said, here's a script. You're going to get up there before the ceremony starts, and you're going to read this. I said, all right, I'm down. And some of it was pretty much some of what I just read. Pretty much like, thus said the Lord, listen to Jesus. Right before the ceremony started, the gospel is so clear. Made in the image of God, we're all broken sinners in need of God's grace. Level, level, level playing field. Foot is the same at the cross. Let's pick up the story in Numbers, verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Here's point number two. Pride will get you into a lot of trouble. So the main issue is racism, right? But what was the real problem? They had issues with his prominence, his spiritual leadership, his, his intimate walk with God. They were like, hey, it can't be just about him. What about us? Pride exalts self. It's self-exalting. It's the original sin. It's what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It's, it manifests in all of our lives. Having a critical spirit, you begin to think, well, you know what? They don't deserve that. I deserve that. I've worked harder. I've done this, X, Y, and Z. Why don't I have that in my life? I was struggling with that just yesterday. I was struggling with that just yesterday. Candace had to be the godly one to come in and, and you know, give your pastor a good little check, right? And be like, you know what? We're going to trust God. We're going to be content. I'm like, yep, all right, that's good. Remind me of my sermon last Sunday, right? So Numbers chapter 3. So when you, when you drill down a little bit, there's jealousy, there's resentment, there's pride. It's not just racism and having a hard heart. They're, they're really, really struggling with, you know, they're not getting the accolades, right? They're not, they're not getting some things on their resume. Look at verse 3. Notice what it says about Moses. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now, you might be thinking right now, well, Pastor Elijah, you told us last week that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Jesus confirmed that. So, Numbers is in the Pentateuch. So, Moses is writing about himself that Moses was very meek, 
more than all people who are on the face of the earth, right? Now, he did write the Pentateuch. Um, the end of Deuteronomy, it talks about his death. Now, did Moses write about his death? He couldn't have, right? That was inserted in later. So the, the scriptures were canonized, and, 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 and these things were added in later. So this verse was added in later, just like the, the story of his death. Now, when it talks about Moses being meek, what does that mean? He's humble. Literally, the idea is strength under control. Is that not Moses? I mean, he's, in, he's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and he's demonstrating so much strength. The people are complaining and grumbling. There are a bunch of GIs, grumbling Israelites. And he is just, he's content. He's trusting God. Yeah, he, he has his moments, but he's meek. He's humble, right? He, he's exercising self-control. Meekness is not weakness. If you think meekness is weakness, try being meek for a week. Try it. I mean, say, God, help me to be meek for one week. Oh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to be humble and hold your tongue and have self-control. Moses is a type of Christ. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. Let's pick up the story in verse 9 to verse, verse 4 to verse 9. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So it's a pretty kind of intense moment. God, he heard the critical complaining, um, the racist remarks of Miriam and Aaron. And what does he do? He calls three of them to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. But then out of the three, he calls two. Can you imagine being in that moment? You're walking up, and then God says, I want you, Miriam, and I want you, Aaron, and you got to walk forward. But Moses, he's good to go. It gets pretty intense in this moment. God is holding them accountable. He's saying, listen, my servant Moses is unique. My servant Moses stands in the gap for people. We know that Moses had a unique relationship with God because God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. And, and, and God's, he saw God's backside. He saw the, the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus talked about Moses. Do you know, I think, I think Moses is mentioned 700 times in the Bible. That's a lot. Jesus talks about Moses. He confirmed that he wrote the Pentateuch. We know on the Mount of Transfiguration, when um, Jesus was up there with the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they saw Jesus' deity. He, he, he unveiled his deity before them. They saw the, the, the glory of God. And it was there. Elijah was there and Moses was there. And what's interesting about that is they recognized Elijah and Moses. That's interesting. 
Elijah, a great prophet. Moses, this servant, this intercessor, this deliverer, this rescuer of God's people. And so God has a word with Miriam and Aaron because Moses had a very intimate, unique relationship with God. He says, why, why did you speak against Moses? It reminds me of David, David and Saul. Remember how Saul chased David all over the wilderness? I mean, and David was just, he was on the run, you know? He was in the cave, Saul comes in the cave, and Saul's relieving himself, and, and David's men, they're like, here's your opportunity, David. Here's your opportunity to take him out. And David chooses not to. Remember what David said? Shall I touch God's anointed? As, as believers, when it comes to criticism, when it comes to being critical of people that are serving God, and th- this applies to everyone. This doesn't just apply to pastors. If you're a believer, you're serving God, you should be very cautious how critical you are of other people. We're, we're going to be held accountable for how we speak about other people. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. It says, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, his tone's going to change, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Here's point number three. Jot this down. God takes sin very seriously. We saw the judgment of God in Numbers 11, and now we're seeing the judgment of God again. Sin has consequences. God is holding Miriam accountable for her and Aaron's sin, racism, and them attacking Moses, the servant, this mouthpiece for God. It says Miriam becomes leprous. This is like a a terminal disease. It's a wasting away of the body. Your your body literally begins to rot away. It begins to decay. I mean, I I can't even imagine how body parts are begin to decay, and they begin to just fall off. We know in the New Testament, Jesus healed so many lepers. If you were a leper, you couldn't be around anyone. You lived in leper colonies. If you went in into the, a village or around people, you had to say, unclean, unclean, right? And so here Miriam is experiencing leprosy. I almost kind of wonder, you know, she, she doesn't want this Cushite woman being in her family. So God's like, okay, well, I'm going to make you really white then. God's warning us about racial prejudice and having a critical spirit. You know, and the beauty of, of, of God is he gives us his word. He gives us boundaries. It's a loving thing for God to do this for us. He doesn't leave us floundering and, and doing it on our own. No, he, he gives us the word to align our lives and our beliefs with the word of God. He gives us the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments is, is for your benefit, your freedom, right? To help you, not hurt you, to free you, not enslave you, to protect you, not punish you. And God, God's saying, in my word, I tell you, don't do this because sin brings a lot of hurt into your life. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt, 
and a lot of suffering. When God says no, it's for our benefit. It's for our protection. You know, maybe write this down. It's not not a fill in the blank, but write it down. When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. This is what she, this is what's going on. This is what's playing out in Miriam's life. She has chosen to sin, and she is, because of that, she is suffering a great deal. Sin always brings suffering. The suffering may not be immediate. You know, you might be thinking, man, I'm, 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 I'm living it up right now. Man, I'm engaging in sin. It will find you out. It will come after you. Sin brings devastation in our lives. Sometimes we don't see the effect of sin, the ripple effect of sin, until down the road. But as believers, when we do engage in sin, we need to come back to the Lord. You may have taken 10,000 steps away from God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You know, you're a believer, but you've walked away from God. I got good news for you. You can come back to God. God's a God of a second chance. He's the God of, of mercy and grace. He could do something beautiful in your life. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people, he gives them this word before they go into the promised land. Notice what he says. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It's Deuteronomy is is about obeying God. If you obey God, you're going to experience life. If you disobey God, there's going to be curses, blessings, and, and curses. So when you choose God, when you choose to live for him, you choose life. You choose blessing. But when you choose sin, you choose to suffer. You choose death. When God says don't, it's for our good. Look at verse 13. Notice Moses' reaction. Aaron is changing his tone. He's pleading with Moses. And Moses, it says, he cried to the Lord. What did he say? He said, oh God, please heal her. Please. If you were Moses, would you say what Moses said? Would you have a heart of forgiveness? Would you be merciful towards a sister, a brother, a friend, a parent, someone that wounded you deeply. Moses is so humble. He, he's, he's a God-molded man. God has molded, changed him, transformed him. There, nowhere in the text does it, does it say that Moses lashed out towards Aaron or, or Miriam. Nowhere does it say that he settled the score, he got even. No. He brought it before the Lord. And not only did he bring the issue, he is begging for God to heal her. That's, that's a heart that's been transformed by God's grace. 100%. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 12. I'm barely going to make it through this message. Verses 14 to 16. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face... Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. 
So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. So they're waiting for her. And after that, the people set out from Hazroth and encamped in the wilderness of Paran. Let me give you some application points. Here's point number one. Criticism reveals that there's a deeper issue going on. Now, did Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, did they love Moses, their brother? 100%, right? The issue, yes, was hard-heartedness and racism. But underneath that, there was something else below the surface. If you look at verse 2 of the text, they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So within their hearts, there's jealousy, there's uh, resentment, there's envy. They're envious of, of Moses. So you might say, well, you know, why do people criticize? Why are people so, so critical? Well, there's a four-letter word, and it's called hurt. I think when you are hurt, when you're hurt by someone, Generally, most people, when they're hurt, they lash out. And I, I learned years ago, hurting people hurt. That's what happens in life. Hurt is oftentimes manifested in, in having a, a critical spirit. You know, anger masks a lot of problems. When someone's angry, there's something beyond the anger. And sometimes it's hurt. But you got to drill down. you got to peel back the onion. you got to see what's, what's causing that person to be angry. There's something there. And oftentimes it's hurt. Here's point number two, application. Criticism highlights that you're the real problem. When you become a critic, if you have a critical spirit, you're the problem. You're not the solution. You're the problem. There's a story of a man who he fell asleep in his stone house all by himself. And one of his grandchildren, they, they, they go into the house and they, they put a piece of Limburger cheese on his mustache and uh, while he was sleeping <clears throat> and he wakes up and when he wakes up he says everything stinks in here this whole house stinks he walks outside he's, he's on the porch and he said this whole world stinks the story illustrates this truth here's the truth the problem is with you when you're the critic when you're the one criticizing other people, when you have the critical eye and you're just negative and you're, and you're, and you're just you're, you're critiquing people and, and you're angry with them, the problem lies within your heart. Jesus said it's not what goes in that defiles you. It's what comes out. So we're already defiled, right? The word that you speak, the critical word that you speak to someone, that just shows that your heart's already messed up, right? It's already there. It's, it's, it's in the, the dark recesses of your, of your heart. And so sometimes people say, well, I don't know why I said that. You know, I don't know why I said that. That's not me. No, that is you because you said it. it. It came from within. Here's point three. We're going to wrap it up. Here we go. Criticism affects your fellowship with God. You see this play out in the story. Miriam and Aaron they're critical of Moses, his wife. They're critical of his prominence. They're critical of his intimate walk with God. And they're angry. They're frustrated. And because of their critical eye and their heart that's twisted, Miriam contracts a terminal disease. 
leprosy. There's consequences. Now, sin doesn't permanently break fellowship with God. Sin hinders your walk with God. It affects your daily walk with God. Positionally, if you're a believer, you're secure in Christ. But your daily walk, your daily walk with the Lord is going to be impacted. This is why John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love what Oswald Chambers said. He said, it is impossible to enter into communion with God when you are in a critical temper. It makes you hard and vindictive and cruel and leaves you with the flattering unction that you are a superior person. When we're critical of other people, we think we're superior. You don't have to say you're superior to feel like you're superior. We've all been in those moments where we look down on other people. We think we're better than them. I don't do that. I'm better than you. When you're critical, you have this prideful, chesty, boastful view of self. You're bigger. You're better. They're inferior. You're superior. It's this superiority complex that is very like, it's like the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they had this smug self-righteousness about them. And Jesus is like, man, it's not about your righteousness. It's about the righteousness that I give you. That's what transforms your life. John says, if we confess. The Greek word there is, is if we agree with God about our sin. If we see our sin the same way God sees our sin. If we own it, if we see it, we take responsibility for it. Here's the good news. God will be faithful and he will be just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Doesn't matter what kind of sin you've committed, how much of a critical spirit you've had. You confess that, you get right with God, and he forgives you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.